Let's pray. Father, uh, as we come now to your word, we ask that you will open our hearts and our minds and that um, you will grant us not just to be a kind of a theoretical exercise, but um, will you bring, will you uh, use it to, to provoke questions, to provoke uh, issues that need to be brought before you, and above all, will you show us Jesus Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please sit down, and uh, it would be helpful if you would turn back to page 10 in your uh, service sheets. We're continuing in Colossians. And uh, one of the things we're trying to figure out this autumn is uh, what does it take for us to be a church that lives up to Jesus' vision for the church? Uh, another way to ask that question is like this. Uh, what does it look like for a manual church to be a mature church? So we're a reasonably young church, but we don't want to be an immature church. How can we be a mature? How, do, how can we grow up as a church? And um, over the last several weeks, the, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians has been helping us explore that question and kind of unpack it just a little bit. And over the, pre, over the last few weeks, there's a little bit, hopefully, a picture is beginning to emerge. So we, we said last week that um, right at the heart of Christianity, do you remember this? Right at the heart of the Christianity is a bond between Jesus and the church, or between Jesus and the Christian. So it's not just uh, that Jesus has a lot of good advice for us. I mean, he does. He, he does. But it's not just that. It's not just that we come to him for um, religious, moral, spiritual advice. It's rather the Christian church is bound and bonded together with Jesus Christ in a bond of love and affection and trust. And that bond, we said last week, is absolutely everything. Everything grows from it. And, and we also said that um, one of the ways that uh, God uh, it strengthens that bond is that he shows us that Jesus answers two fundamental questions. Who is God? Who am I? Uh, who is God? If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus Christ, Paul says. But also, if you want to know who am I, what does it mean to be human? Look at Jesus Christ, because he is human as humanity is meant to be. Now, all that's previously at Emmanuel. Um, Today, what Paul says is that Jesus answers another fundamental question. And if you understand how Jesus answers this fundamental question, you'll see how uh, that bond with Jesus Christ is strengthened. And it's this. What does it all mean? What's the meaning of life? What it, you know, is there an overarching purpose to everything we see around us? And if so, what is it? Um, a lot of us are familiar with uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the, to the Galaxy. Um, you'll know this. Um, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is, who knows? 42. Um, that, that's okay. You, 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 can, you, can, you, can, you can own that here. Don't worry. Um, now, yeah, the, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. Now, you'll appreciate that, as clever as that is, Paul is going to give us a different answer. And you know what the answer is going to be. Paul is going to say the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is, everybody together? Jesus. Yeah, come on. It, it, if you grew up in the church, you knew that that was the right answer. <laughs> but as audacious as it sounds, that's 
Paul's answer, and we need to unpack it, because when we see it, it'll increase that bond with Christ. Let me explain. Look at the verse, and look particularly at verse 15, 15 and following. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Those are the two crucial uh, prepositional phrases for today, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, um, we're going to kind of back into those verses, but one of the weird things about this world that we live in is that human beings, it appears to me, come back at me later about this, um, it seems to me that human beings are a strange species for the world we live in. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Human beings, it seems to me, are captivated by the question why, right? Um, I have a, a three-year-old called Peter. Anybody who knows him, you can talk to him later, and ask the question why multiple times per paragraph. And, and it's not just for a three-year-old, right? We're always ask, asking the question why. You look at the world around you, and it's normal to ask, is there meaning? Why are we here? Uh, does this story that we're in have some significance? And if it doesn't have any significance, what does that mean? Which brings us back to the question, why? But the weird thing is, not so much that we ask that question, the weird thing is that we live in a universe that does not seem to cough up the answer very easily. Does it? Um, I was at the Natural History Museum earlier this week, because it's fun, and I was in the human origins section, which is all the Neanderthals and, and stuff, and, and it says this. I, you can go there and, and hear this. It says in a little video, what science, for all the many things that science can do, what science does not do and cannot do is what the Greek philosophers called telling us what the good life is. Science does not tell us what right and wrong is. It does not tell us about good and evil. Interestingly, science does not tell us what the meaning and the purpose of existence is. That's what philosophy is for. That's what religion is for. And that's what moral and ethical systems are for. I thought that was a really interesting thing to have in the exhibit. And it was interesting because apparently you can observe everything around us from a scientific perspective, and you will find out an enormous amount. However, no matter how far, how much you observe, you will not be able to answer the question, why? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the meaning of it all? Now, keep that in mind and go back to the first century when Paul is writing Colossians, because in his context, both the Greek tradition and the Jewish tradition were wrestling with this question. So uh, the Greeks had all sorts of solutions because they had all sorts of philosophies, but uh, part of it was that they observed that this world that we live in, um, there's something that gives it coherence. There's something that makes it work. There's something that kind of holds it all together and makes it work well. And they, they call that whatever it is, they called it the logos, um, the kind of inner logic of the universe, uh, a theory of everything, if you're into physics. And at the same time, the Jewish tradition, uh, we're asking similar questions. Um, Proverbs chapter 8 uh, in the Old Testament talks about 
wisdom. And, and wisdom is personified there as, as this wonderful woman. And um, it says in, in Proverbs chapter 8 that God used wisdom to create the world and to give the world coherence and to make the world a delightful place. There's beauty and there's joy in this concept of wisdom. And in Proverbs, you want to learn wisdom because you want to live in line with what it is that makes the universe tick. Now keep all that in mind and go back to Paul in Colossians. Because what he does here is he takes the Greek idea and the Jewish idea and he says, we're going to go way, way further than that. Because it's as if he says, listen, behind the logos of the Greeks and behind the wisdom of the Old Testament, behind everything that you see and everything that you cannot see, there is a who. There's a person. And according to Paul, it's Jesus Christ. Now, to kind of wrap our minds around this, I want you to do a little bit of a, a mental uh, experiment, I want you, or an illustration. Think about a novel, okay? Imagine for a minute, this might be odd, imagine the universe and all of its story is a novel. Now, the author of a novel is the one who gives it coherence, right? Yeah, if you've ever read a badly written novel, you, try, you get mad at a person. You get mad at the, at the author, and then you stop. The author's uh, the one who brings the story into being and kind of holds this whole story together. And if you read a brilliant novel, so if you read Crime and Punishment, or if you read, for the rest of us, Harry Potter, <laughs> um, it, what happens is you naturally admire the author, don't you? Dostoevsky's amazing. J.K. Rowling is remarkable. And their art demands admiration, doesn't it? Now, that's part of Paul's point. Jesus is the author of everything, says Paul. And therefore, Jesus' art, everything that you see around us, demands our admi uh, admiration for Jesus, argues Paul. But he goes further. He goes much further. Because Paul is not just saying that Jesus is the author who gives coherence and beauty to the world. He is saying that, but he's also claiming that Jesus is, so to speak, the main character. Look at verse 16. All things were created through Jesus, he says, and for Jesus. For Jesus, what does that mean? Go back to the novel again. Uh, most novels are organized around a, a central character. Um, for the rest of us, Harry Potter, okay? And, and the whole point of the story, from beginning to end, all the books, is, is to unveil who Harry is. We, we meet Harry, we watch Harry grow up, we feel like we're growing up with him. Um, and, and there's more than Harry Potter in the stories. But everything else kind of has significance to the degree that it's related to Harry, right? That's why Ron's so frustrated all the time at least in one of the books, it, that, all the rest of the characters get meaning as they're related to Harry. It's about Harry. Now, bring that back to Paul. Because he's not just saying that Jesus is the author and the art, artist. He's also saying that Jesus is the main character. And, and that's why, according to Paul, Jesus is the key to meaning. He's the key to the whole thing. He's arguing that the world that we live in was designed by Jesus with the particular purpose of displaying Jesus. 
Now, how does that, how does that unpack our lives? Well, again, imagine the universe is a novel. And imagine you read the whole thing. Imagine you, and, and it's got all the little details in it. It's got all the big macro themes. And, and, and you read it from cover to cover. And then you push back and you look at the whole thing, the whole story. And you ask yourself, what's the big theme in this grand story of the universe? And you push back and all of a sudden you realize, surprisingly, that the fundamental theme is that Jesus Christ is beautiful, compelling, remarkable. But then you zoom back in and, and, and you find a specific page. And on that specific page, your name is there. And you find your name and you read the story of your life, which is scary, but you do. And you ask the question, what's this character's role? What's my role? How do I fit into this bigger overarching story? And you realize, to your great surprise, that the central theme of your story is somehow to point to Jesus's beauty, to contribute to that larger story, so that your story is all about pointing to that bigger story, which is to say, you find out that you're, the, you're a supporting character. We are all of us Ron Weasleys. Or differently, imagine you want to know the meaning of your work and your job. Once again, you open up the novel and you find the bit of the story that's about your job and you realize that your job is meant somehow, once again, to somehow display the goodness or the beauty or the traditional word, the glory of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you realize that the specific, your specific role in your job is not just to make money. That's good, do it, but it's not just that. Nor is it primarily, exclusively, to find a to uh, find personal fulfillment in your work. I hope you do. But rather, you find out that your role is to work out how to do your job, whether you love it or whether you hate it, in such a way that it, it becomes a reflection of Jesus' beauty. And you say, how do I do that? Well, that's part of what makes the story compelling. Or, alternatively, imagine you love the natural world, and, and in the story, you find yourself uh, on a hike in a beautiful mountain range. And as you're walking through it, you, you're enjoying the mountains and the streams and the valleys and the flowers and the trees and all of these things. And then you wonder, what is the meaning of it all? And then you remember the story you're in. And you realize that the beauty that is around you and that compels you so much is designed to evoke the beauty of the artist. And you find yourself worshiping Jesus, and there you find yourself right in the center of the great story of the universe. So Paul's saying all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, which is to say he is the who and the why behind everything we see. And he's the who and the why behind our lives. Now, Stop. Because I could well imagine somebody say, if we did this, wait, Jim, hang on. What are you thinking? I could imagine somebody coming to me and saying, uh, what sort of fancy dream world are you living in? Have you read this story you're talking about at all? <laughs> Have you read the story of my life at all? And I can imagine somebody saying, you can dream about heaven all you want, but some of us have lived through hell. 
And if Jesus really is the who and the why behind all of it, then he has a lot to answer for. Now, if that's what you're thinking, thank you for bringing it up. Because you're right. Look at verse 16. Do you see how Paul mentions thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? Just, just look at it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. You see that there at the, at the end. Now, Paul, when he talks about thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities, he's hinting at something very sinister. We'll come back to this all the way through Colossians, um, and we'll pick it up a little bit more next week. Every story has a conflict in it, and so does this one. And if you go back to Genesis, um, you find out, and we talked about this last week, God created humanity and said, um, you are my image, um, it, which means a lot of things, but it at least means that God gave a certain degree of authority, and a dominion is the old word used, that humanity was meant to use that authority to reflect his character in the, in the world. But the conflict comes when humanity uses that God-given authority, uh, dominion, rule, to rebel against God. Now, think about uh, a military coup. What happens in a military coup is, imagine an, an elected, uh, legitimate government gives the military some degree of authority, legitimate authority, but then the military uses that authority to grasp power and bring down the government and seize control. Now, that's what the Bible calls sin. And it leads to a tragic kind of tyranny. And that's part of what Paul means when he talks about the, these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Not just this, but at least this. He's talking about how they're perversions of God's authority. And sometimes they're corrupt governments. Sometimes they're corrupt economic systems. Very often they are corrupt religious leaders. Um, and underneath all of that is the idea that there are uh, uh, evil spiritual forces. But in every situation, it involves individuals who reject God and say, I have a right to resist God's story and chart my own. But the problem is, because it doesn't sound that bad, does it? The problem is that, um, we, according to Paul, if we're out of sync with Jesus, just work with it here, then it means we're also out of sync with the one who gives the world coherence. And we're out of sync with the one who holds the world together and preserves it, which in a Jewish context, it means we're out of sync with wisdom. In a Greek context, it's out, we're out of sync with the logos who gives the inner logic to everything, and therefore everything begins to deteriorate. Everything begins to disintegrate. Um, a lot of us will know that uh, a guy called Hugh Hefner died this week, and um, Scott Simon uh, on NPR wrote this about him. And, and it struck me because of this idea of deterioration. Scott Simon said, At the time of his 2003 NPR interview, Hefner shared his mansion with seven women, all young enough to be his granddaughters. But the man who set out to surround himself with sexuality and extravagance looked isolated and lonely. You see how he's, he's observing there's this kind of disintegration that occurs. And then he says this, Hefner said his eventful life had convinced him that romance was an illusion. 
Now, I, I say that to just to observe the disintegration that occurs. A, a military coup ends almost inevitably in tyranny that deteriorates and disintegrates the nation over time. And spiritual coups fare no better. And that's why, according to Paul, this world smells like hell sometimes. And that's also why that if we're going to see Jesus' beauty, we can't just see that Jesus is the author of the natural world. We can't just see that Jesus is the main character of the story. We have to see that Jesus is the one who resolves the central conflict of the story. We have to see that the cross of Jesus Christ is always the epicenter of Jesus' beauty because the cross of Christ is the epicenter of Jesus' victory. This is crucial in, the, in Colossians. In chapter 2, it says this, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, meaning those of us who were a part of the coup and completely complicit with it and therefore guilty, he says, you, God made alive with Christ, forgiving our sins, nailing them to the cross, and then listen to this language. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. See, friends, at the cross... Jesus defeated the hell of this world by experiencing the hell of this world and offering amnesty to those of us who are part of the coup, which is to say all of us. Now, we're going to pick this up more next week. We need to close today, but let me close with this. If all of this is true, if Jesus is the author and the main character and the one who resolves the conflict of the great story of the universe, then what sort of church should we be? And there's a thousand different ways to answer that question, but here's one. We need to be a church of delighted surrender. Why? Because at the epicenter of beauty and meaning in the story is this moment where Jesus defeats the rulers and the authorities and offers amnesty to rebels like us, then the epicenter of our story, your story, and our church's story is when we renounce our own claim to authority over our own lives, and it means we come to Jesus and we offer everything that we are to him. We, we offer our lives and we say, Jesus, here is my life. Grant it to belong to you. Use it for the display of your beauty. Jesus, take my will. Use it for the display of your beauty. Uh, take my work and my job and career and ambition and all of the disappointment and the promise that's all wrapped up in that and use it for the display of your beauty and, and not ultimately for mine because I know that that's where I'll be fulfilled. It means, Jesus, take my identities, all of them, those that are a, a, you know, imposed upon me and those that I've constructed for myself, take all of them and use it for the display of your glory and of your beauty. It means take my relationships, the ones that I can't stand, the ones that I don't have and I wish I did, and the ones that fill my life with joy, and use them for the display of your beauty. But it means total surrender, but it's a delighted surrender. It's not sad. Don't be morose about it. It's not. Because if sin deteriorates our lives, then surrender restores our lives. Surrender restores beauty. And therefore, you will never know the answer to the question, what does it all mean, and why am I here, and what's my purpose? You will never know that 
the answer to that question until you experience the joy of surrender to Jesus. Because as you surrender to him, you'll see that he's the author. And therefore, when you look around your world, you will see Jesus' beauty in a thousand hidden places. And you will see that Jesus is the main character. And therefore, as your life unfolds, you will see him over time clearly, and he will become more beautiful the more you look at him. If you can't see him clearly now, it's just a chapter. Keep looking at him. And you'll see that he's the one that resolves the conflict, which means even the pain and the guilt in our own lives are redeemed at the cross. So friends, bring to the Lord, because he is the meaning of it all, a delighted surrender. Amen?